Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Today we're going to talk about a very controversial topic. And I'd like to start this off by reading to you the first paragraph from a paper published a couple years ago in 2017 by the Animal Legal and Historical Center. This is in Michigan State University College of Law, and the author is Anna Jones. Here it is. In October of 2016, officials in Tijeras, New Mexico, notified Katrina Flanagan that her family would need to get rid of their pit bull, Brewski, even though he was a service dog. Katrina Flanagan adopted the certified service dog from a rescue group a year and a half ago for her 11-year-old son, Connor. The letter clarified that unless the pit bull was removed, he would be, quote, seized and destroyed. The city cited to a breed-specific ordinance outlining the breed, which was enacted after a young girl was mauled and killed by several pit bulls in the early 1980s. So this is an example of what is called breed-specific legislation, or BSL. I know a lot of you are already familiar with aspects of breed-specific legislation, and it continues to raise heated debates among dog owners and non-dog owners alike. Breed-specific legislation is a generalized term for laws that regulate or ban certain breeds, ostensibly to decrease dog attacks or dog bites on humans and other animals. Such legislation targets specific breeds of dogs that are wrongly thought to all be dangerous, most frequently pit bull types. So, in some states or counties, it's illegal to own certain breeds targeted by such legislation. Some states charge higher registration fees for pit bull type dogs. Certain landlords and homeowners associations blatantly state that they will not allow pit bull type dogs. Other cities require certain breeds to be wearing muzzles when out in the public, regardless of whether or not the dogs have ever shown any sign of aggression. Currently, 392 United States cities have banned pit bull dogs. Another 92 cities in the United States have declared pit bull dogs vicious. According to the breed-specific legislation map put out by AnimalFarmFoundation.org and updated monthly, a total of 867 cities in the U.S. have enacted some form of breed-specific legislation on pit bull-type dogs. Those in favor of breed-specific legislation say it's necessary to ensure the public safety and argue that such legislation protects citizens from vicious and dangerous dogs. After speaking to numerous researchers on the topic over the years, I would argue that in terms of protecting people and pets, which is the intended goal of this legislation, BSL is ineffective and a means of spreading stereotypes and stigmatizing certain kinds of dogs. And if the goal is reducing dog bites and dog attacks, perhaps funds and resources would be best used on education and regulation that targets irresponsible dog owners and dog breeders and animal abusers, rather than regulating the kinds of dogs that you and I want as part of our family, or being told that you have to put a muzzle on your dog when you're out in public, or being forced to make a choice to move out of your place of residence or even out of your city to stay with your dog or else relinquish your dog so it can be destroyed. I mean, if this is not a discriminatory ban, I don't know what is. And how do these types of laws not lead to breed stereotypes and misinformation? And how does BSL not fuel the stigma surrounding pit bulls and the generalization that they have inherently bad temperaments? Okay, so let's focus on some of the problems with breed-specific legislation. The first is the name breed-specific legislation. That's really a misnomer. It's not breed-specific, but rather 
appearance-specific, and I'll explain what I mean. BSL focuses on dogs with certain physical characteristics. The most obvious of these are a solid, muscular body type, a large, blocky head, wide-set shoulders, a large chest, and a rectangular-shaped body. Chances are you know a dog who possesses one or more of these physical traits. I have a friend who has a breed called a boxer who possesses some of these traits. The French bulldog, some would argue, has a lot of these traits. There are many kinds of dogs and mixes of different types of breeds of dogs out there that have these traits. Whether it's a pit bull type dog or another kind of dog, many dogs can have these physical characteristics. And by the way, regarding mixed breed dogs, which most of us have, unless you do DNA testing on your dog, you really don't know exactly what mixes of breeds of dog you have. And I'm not talking about the Labradoodle or Schnoodle Doodle or Peek-a-Poo or Pooley Poo or any other combination of designer dogs and scrupulous breeders decided to create because there's just not enough great dogs out there already. We need to create more dogs with genetic flaws so these breeders can profit. I'm talking about your dog that you've adopted, which very likely is made up of at least a few different kinds of breeds. You can guess at the predominant breed or breeds of your dog, but it's possible you'll be wrong unless you get your dog DNA tested. Elizabeth Warren, I'm not comparing her to a dog, but she serves as a good example here. She claimed Native American heritage because she has high cheekbones, but DNA tests purported to show that she has very little Native ancestry. You know where I'm going with this, right? Just because Elizabeth Warren has a certain feature, high cheekbones, that she perceives to be a feature of a group of people, Native Americans, she wanted to identify herself as that racial denomination. But in fact, DNA tests did not verify her claim. Well, same goes for dogs. People look at a certain feature of a dog that they perceive to be a feature of a specific breed, and therefore they identify that dog as that breed. And by the way, since I mentioned designer dogs, I want to say one thing about that. So as you know, the Labradoodle set off an intense interest in designer dogs. And a recent news article, such as the one called The Creator of the Labradoodle, says he made Frankenstein's Monster. Peter mentioned this article on the show a couple weeks ago, so sometime soon we're going to talk about the truth behind designer dogs and dog breeding. And a lot of you guys already know this, but we'll talk about the inbreeding that occurs and the genetic problems and health issues of purebred and designer dogs. Okay, back to breed-specific legislation, or BSL. One major problem with these types of laws is that studies have shown that even those who are most familiar with dogs, like veterinarians, trainers, whomever, you, me, are not reliably able to determine a dog's breed. Four or five years ago, I had a guest on my show, Victoria Voith. She was professor at Western University of Health Sciences, and her primary area of research was in visual breed identification of dogs. And this was so interesting. Victoria got interested in this topic when she was working at various shelters and noticed that there was a diversity of opinions of shelter workers when trying to identify the makeup or breed of dogs. So she studied the relationship between the visual identification of the dogs, Right? What breed of dog or mixed breed of dog is determined by someone's perception and the identification of the dogs determined by DNA. And her studies showed that most of the time, in fact, 75% of the time, there was misidentification of the dog. 
So what a person thinks a dog is by their looks did not match the DNA of the dog 75% of the time. She explained that people working at shelters or rescue groups are often required by management to try to label or identify the dogs that enter the shelter. So they are instructed to pretty much guess what they think the breed of dog is, or at least guess what they think its predominant breed is, and then call it a mix of that breed. And she says what people do is they look at a certain feature of a dog that they perceive to be a feature of a specific breed, and they identify it with that purebred dog. And she was explaining that there are harmful consequences of mislabeling or misidentifying dogs. For example, it might affect the success of the adoption of the dog from the shelter. A dog labeled as, let's say, a pit bull mix might not even be considered by some adopters when looking for a dog at a shelter. Misidentification of dogs can affect how dogs are treated by the shelter workers. Maybe the shelter has a policy that certain breeds of dogs are considered less adoptable and therefore euthanized earlier than others would be. Misidentifying dogs might affect how the adopter treats that particular dog. And then, of course, another harmful consequence is certain breeds of dogs are subjected to discrimination, like BSL, as this might cause people to relinquish or return their dogs back to the shelter. Now, Victoria went on to speak a bit about breed-specific legislation, which we all know now that BSL is typically created to increase public safety by decreasing number of dog bites. But she explained the problem is the data that we use to make these laws or policies are based on people's perceptions of what the dog's breeds are, which could have been tabulated from vet office records, emergency room records, shelters, and really, we have no idea as to how accurate or valid this information is when they were entered in the databases or written in the research papers. For instance, say data is obtained from emergency room records. People coming into the emergency room because they were bitten or are being treated for a dog bite, and the ER has to record the dog bites that they see. They record the number of dog bites that they treat. They will ask you the kind of dog or breed of dog that bit you, and again, this information is based on someone's perception, which is, more times than not, inaccurate. So can you really say that pit bulls bite or attack more than other breeds of dogs? In 2012, a study conducted by Maddie's Fund looking at shelters, and in the interest of time, I'll just tell you the bottom line here, the authors concluded two main points. First, observer identification of breed was so inconsistent that visual identification of breed is unreliable. And second, the safety of a dog is best evaluated by looking at the individual dog's attributes, including personality, behavior, and history, not breed. Okay, we gotta take a break. Don't go away. You're listening to Animals Today. Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? 
There are many foods you should not let your pets eat. Onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs, too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs don't eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking. So don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Welcome back. We're talking about breed-specific legislation, or BSL. I'm going to tell you a personal story to illustrate how trying to identify a dog's breed just by looking at it is unreliable. So we currently have two rescue dogs in our family. Both are around 60 or 65 pounds. The older one, Cosmo, he's all black except for his feet, which are white, and a little patch on his chest, which is white. He has many traits which one might think are features of a pit bull type dog, except for his color, right? So he has the square head, wide shoulders, large chest, rectangular shaped body. And we thought by looking at him when he was adopted that he is sure to have some pit bull in him and perhaps some black lab. Well, it turns out Cosmo's DNA test indicated that he has no black lab and is only about 50% pit bull breed type. So little surprising, but not so much. But the bigger surprise was with our other dog, Sky. With the exception of Skye's head, her body type is really not like one might imagine on a pit bull. Skinny body, absolutely no body fat whatsoever, long slender legs, and her slender body type and color of her coat and eyes was such that when we first rescued Skye, many people would identify her as a Weimariner. I don't know if you guys know what a Weimariner looks like. I had to look it up after so many people telling us that that's the kind of dog we have. I had trouble even pronouncing it and spelling it. Anyway, how much Weimariner in Skye's DNA? None. Zero. In fact, she ends up being 99%, guess what? Pitbull. And by the way, we keep using this term pitbull, but really the term pitbull does not refer to a breed of dog, but rather to a whole group of dogs. There are distinct breeds within a group called pitbulls, like the American Pitbull Terrier, the American Staffordshire Terrier, the Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Anyway, the term pitbull has come to refer to dogs who simply look like they belong to one of those breeds, even if they share no genetic connection. And it's really a term used for a particular phenotype based on a look of the dog or a specific feature. So this even poses another problem to breed-specific legislation, that the pit bull is not really a breed. Another problem with breed-specific legislation is that it not only discriminates against dogs, but it discriminates, or I should say punishes, people as well. Responsible owners of well-socialized, well-cared-for, friendly dogs living in areas with such legislation suffer. If their dogs fall under the regulated breeds, they may be forced to pay fines, move, have difficulty finding housing, or in the worst cases, give up or euthanize their pets. 
In fact, animal shelters and rescues are forced to kill large numbers of healthy, adoptable dogs in cities and states where breed-specific laws make adopting and owning certain dogs virtually impossible. A crucial issue BSL fails to address is that of irresponsible dog owners. A dog of any breed is more likely to display aggressive behavior if it's not supervised or not properly cared for and has not received appropriate training or socialization. Experts from the Humane Society and numerous other animal welfare organizations and public safety organizations agree that BSL and other policies that restrict dogs based on appearance do not reduce dog bites or increase public safety. Rather, they give a false sense of security to some while diverting attention away from a more complex problem. Yes, dogs bite. I'm not denying that dog bites are a serious and dangerous problem. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, more than 4.7 million people in the United States are bitten by dogs each year, and more than 800,000 receive medical attention for dog bites. But what proponents of breed ban legislation leave out of this equation is the fact that any dog can bite, regardless of the dog's size, breed, or genetic mix of breeds. I recall a woman I know asking her vet when her kids were young if there was any possibility that her new lab puppy could ever bite one of her children. Dr. Ray's reply was, does it have teeth? If you're going to judge whether or not a dog will bite based on its breed, you will most likely be wrong. A more accurate predictor of whether a dog will bite is the dog's history, behavior, overall temperament, the situation, and the number of dogs involved. The American Veterinary Medical Association has said, statistics on fatalities and injuries caused by dogs cannot be responsibly used to document the dangerousness of a particular breed relative to other breeds for several reasons. This is because the data reported is often unreliable for the following reasons. The breed of a biting dog is often not known or is reported inaccurately. The actual number of bites that occur in a community is not known, especially if they don't result in serious injury because they're often not reported. The number of dogs of a particular breed or combination of breeds in a community is not known because it's rare for all dogs in a community to be licensed. Statistics often do not consider multiple incidents caused by a single animal. And finally, breed popularity changes over time, making a comparison of breed-specific bite rates unreliable. However, a review of the research that attempts to quantify the relation between breed and bite risk finds the connection to be weak or absent, while responsible ownership variables such as socialization, neutering, and proper containment of dogs are much more strongly indicated as important risk factors. The National Research Canine Council states that the trend in prevention of dog bites continues to shift in favor of multifactorial approaches, focusing on improved ownership practices, better understanding of canine behavior, education of parents and children regarding safety around dogs, and consistent enforcement of breed-neutral dangerous dogs and reckless owner ordinances in communities and that the truly effective laws hold all dog owners responsible for the humane care, custody, and control of all dogs, regardless if your dog is a pit bull type or a cute little fluffy Pomeranian. The National Research Canine Council website also says BSL is very costly as it diverts resources, taxpayer dollars, from animal services and is open to legal challenge from pet owners. 
And there is this growing awareness that breed-specific legislation not only does not improve community safety, but are costly to enforce, penalize responsible dog owners, and harms their companion animals. And of course, it stigmatizes the breed of dog. And the media will perpetuate this stereotype because when pit bulls do bite, it's much more widely reported than attacks caused by other breeds. Okay, my concluding remarks about breed-specific legislation when we return. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, this is Dr. Lori with your Animals Today Minute featuring one of my favorites, the cheetah. December 4th is International Cheetah Day. And unfortunately, they are Africa's most endangered big cat, with only about 10,000 remaining in the wild. These speedy carnivores can reach 70 miles per hour as they hunt their preferred prey, small antelopes. Cheetahs use their long, muscular tail like a rudder and stabilizer, permitting quick turns at high speeds. Cheetahs have about 2,000 small round spots, each animal with its unique pattern, which allows observers and scientists to identify them. Their characteristic dark tear streaks are thought to aid their vision by reducing glare. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio. Today's Animals Today fun facts are about penguins. Specifically, the world's biggest penguin, or at least the fossilized remains of it, were recently discovered in Antarctica. 37 million years ago, a giant penguin, almost seven feet tall, inhabited the rocky shores and the seas. Scientists believe this huge aquatic bird would have been able to stay underwater 40 minutes or longer, allowing it to hunt deep sea fish. The second largest penguin ever discovered was merely five feet tall. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. back to animals today, we're speaking about breed-specific legislation. So the good news is that more people and their elected officials are learning why breed-specific bans don't make any sense. And according to the Humane Society of the United States, many municipalities have replaced breed-specific legislation with breed-neutral policies. So BSL is on the decline. And in the news just the other day, I read there's a bill repealing Ontario's ban on pit bulls, which will be up for debate next week. Many say the law there has been ineffective. As it stands there now, and since 2005, owners who have dogs that look like pit bulls, the dogs have to be muzzled when they go outside, or else the owners can face a $10,000 fine and even jail time under the Dog Owners Liability Act. Also, in the city of Independence, that's in Missouri, there's a ban on pit bulls or anything that looks like a pit bull. So you can't own or be seen walking with your dog if it looks like a pit bull in that city. And reportedly, one incident back in 2006 led to this breed-specific law. So one incident created a ban on every single dog that resembles the dog who caused that one incident. Well, many say the law is not doing what it thought it would do, and that ban might be lifted as well. So, as you can imagine, this is a highly debated topic, and pit bull terriers are, in fact, the most controversial dog alive today. Through our history of pit bulls and gang culture getting intertwined and a purposeful breeding, training and abusing these dogs to fight and become vicious and aggressive, you can see why these dogs are stigmatized. But there's no convincing data to show that breed-specific legislation has been successful anywhere. 
So it's time that more lawmakers and public officials and policymakers come to grips with the reality that the dog or breed of dog is not the problem. And regulation that's going to have any true effect on public safety is going to have to focus on dog owners and dog breeders. And really, rather than legislate what breed or breeds of dogs that people can have, perhaps we should legislate who can and cannot have dogs. I mean, we don't want sex offenders to be around kids. We also don't want animal abusers and the Michael Vicks of the world to have dogs either. And just as each human person is an individual, each dog is an individual and shouldn't be judged because someone guessed at their breed and shouldn't be judged based on a physical trait or physical appearance. We should be evaluating and treating each dog, no matter its breed, as an individual. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. Do you ever wonder what you can do to be nicer to animals and to help them? Here are a few things you can do to show your appreciation to our furry friends. You can donate to or volunteer at your local animal shelter. Walking the dogs and playing with the cats is a meaningful way to make a difference in the lives of homeless animals in our shelters. You can be a foster parent if you have the extra time and space. Becoming a foster parent is a wonderful way to take some of the burden off our overcrowded shelters by giving an animal a loving place to live until a forever home is found. Increase your appreciation for wildlife by providing a welcoming space around your home for butterflies, hummingbirds, and other creatures. Also, by simply driving cautiously through areas populated by wildlife such as deer, you're acting with compassion. These are only a few ideas to encourage you to continue thinking about acting kindly towards animals. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Cockfighting is illegal in all 50 states, and yet it is not yet eradicated. It's still going on. Stu Chafis with Shark is with us now. He is an investigator with that organization, Showing Animals Respecting Kindness. And we're going to learn about what cockfighting is and uh, their new initiative to combat it. Welcome back, Stu. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Why don't we start with hearing a little bit about uh, what cockfighting is? Can you describe sort of what happens? Yes, cockfighting is a blood sport where roosters are pitted against each other, uh, often with blades, and it is a fight to the death. Uh, There is a lot of gambling that goes on in this, in addition to the really horrendous animal cruelty. uh, uh, We, you know, we came across a grand jury report out of California that really talked about not just how how bad it was cruelty-wise, but the additional crimes that uh, go along with it. So it it is a nexus of animal cruelty and criminal behavior. And uh, what are the animals forced to do? What exactly happens in, in a fight? Well, the roosters are put into a small pit, it's called. And then they're thrown at each other. Uh, We've seen training videos that show how, even though there's a a certain natural instinct territorial-wise for roosters to fight, it is nothing compared to what these birds are trained for and and the bloodiness of it and just the, uh, uh, the inherent cruelty of it. So, they're, you know, these animals are, are, are forced into a pit. They've been trained to fight. They've got, you know, they're armed with these razor blades. 
and they cut each other to pieces, and whoever's alive at the end uh, wins. So these blades, they're affixed to their feet. Right. They're affixed to the bottom of their legs. Got it. Yeah. So like when, they, you know, roosters, uh, they, they will kick at each other, uh, and then, but now they've got blades on them, so they're cutting each other up. How are these things organized anyway? Well, it's really different, and there are cockfighting rings and operations across our country. It's not like there's just one. There are hundreds, if not thousands of them. You know, when we, Shark got involved in cockfighting a little bit over a year ago when there was a property in Illinois, not far from our home office, uh, that had all these roosters on it. So we took our drone and we flew it over and we saw dozens and dozens of these birds there. And then that led us to California, where we, in Monterey County, we again took our drone and we kept a number of, of residents and properties that had all of these, uh, you know, massive rooster breeding areas. And then more recently, um, we began to realize that there are hundreds, of, uh, probably thousands, untold thousands of cockfighters on Facebook. So what we did was we began to investigate it using their own information and their own pictures and videos and posts about how they cockfight and they love it and the gambling involved and and many different really just brazen things because they just don't care. So, again, it's not like there's one operation, but you can have hundreds of these across the country where uh, some are interstate some are international that we found, um, but it's, 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 it is a massive problem. And even though it is illegal, uh, it goes on a lot. And are they emboldened by just the lack of enforcement? Uh, why don't they care? Yeah, let me, you know, I, our inaugural report uh, for our crush cockfighting campaign, that's the name we've decided to give to this effort. It's really going to be a major effort. Uh, deals with two law enforcement officers from Kentucky. Now, they both worked at a, the Harlan County Detention Center, which is a jail. So just think about that for a second. You've got two law enforcement officers at a jail um, openly posting on their Facebook pages that they run a game farm and all the cockfighting they do. Huh. And, and nobody cared. And we have information that other law enforcement officers in that area knew about it. And it's been really interesting that in the days since we've released this, I've tried to make contact with a number of government officials in Kentucky and state police, and no one is responding back. So it really seems that, you know, you've got heavy influence of politics and law enforcement backing up this outright illegal activity. And uh, it's really quite stunning, but we're going to keep pushing for it. And it's important. I think that's the other reason why it's so important to expose these people, because now it's out there. Now they can't just continue to do it because they don't know who's watching them. Hopefully other cockfighters will be, you know, thinking, gee, maybe I shouldn't go to that one because who knows if the FBI is going to show up or not. So, um, again, we've, uh, we, I would strongly suggest people go to crushcockfighting.com. Uh, you'll be able to see the videos we're releasing, and we will, we will be releasing more. Uh, we can't give all the information out publicly because we are working with different law enforcement agencies, and we don't want to alert uh, those cockfighters that they're being watched. But I think that this campaign and the 
just the, the, the wide range of cockfighters across our country from one end to the other is, is hopefully will have a major impact on the cockfighting uh, industry. Are there any signs that there's a cockfighting operation happening in my neighborhood? Like, what would alert people that something's going on? So it's actually quite simple. If you have somebody in your neighborhood or you see someone who has uh, a big rooster breeding operation, and one telling thing is they often have uh, these blue barrels with roosters chained to them, you know, remember, these are all males. So... This is an industry where they're, they're breeding males for fighting. So if you see a property that has 100 roosters on it, well, they're not, that's not a leg, uh, excuse me, that's not an egg-laying business, obviously. They are most likely breeding for the uh, cockfighting uh, business. So, you know, it's important to report those. Uh, there are places that have ordinances uh, not allowing you to do that. Um, you can send a tip to Shark. Go to info at sharkonline.org. Send us an email at that address. And, um, you know, we worked on other tips where we found cockfighting. And, I'll, and I'll, uh, I, I want to point something out. Um, the reason why it's important to, to send tips is that people who do reach out to us, and this has happened many times, they've tried to reach out to groups like HSUS or PETA or other large organizations, and they don't respond. And these tips just sit there and uh, go, they, they just, nothing happens. That, but Shark does respond. You know, again, we do the best we can, but we have responded to many tips. And um, that's the difference between us and some of these other groups is that, you know, again, we just got a, a recent tip from someone who said, yeah, I, I sent this to HSUS a year ago. They didn't do anything with it. So now we're going to do something with it. Yeah. Um, you know, know the groups that are out there that are doing the hard work. And if you see a rooster breeding operation, let us know. We'll look into it. We'll see what we can do. You know, maybe we'll work with you on reporting it to the local police if we can get some drone footage of it or, it, you know, or, or some other ways, which I can't really talk about. But we do have research abilities to find out uh, if those are operations uh, that deal with cockfighting. Well, we all appreciate the work you and Shark do. So thanks for coming on. Stu Chaffetz with Shark. I really appreciate it. Again, please visit Crush Cockfighting. Uh, send us your tips. Send us your help. And we will, we promise you, we will uh, run these guys into the ground wherever we find them. Love it. Thanks, Stu. More with Animals Today after this break. and you're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm proud to say that we are now in our 11th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, advancing the interests of animals. Please check them out at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Imagine devouring delicious, healthy meals without as much as lifting a pot. With Vistro, you get that convenience plus a lot more. We have really been enjoying our delicious plant-based meals from Vistro, like soba noodles and peanut sauce, Southwest barbecue chicken, and Tuscan calzone. 
You order your package online and choose your favorites, and in a few days, your box arrives at your home. The freshly prepared meals come in an insulated box packed with plenty of dry ice to keep them frozen. Place the meals in your freezer, and they are ready to go whenever you want. The easy-to-follow heating instructions are on each package. These are organic, flavorful, healthy vegan recipes, and having these as an option has made our busy weeks so much easier. Plus, they've been in business for six years now, so they really know what they're doing. Go to vistro.com, V like Victor, E-E-S-T-R-O.com, and choose your meals and enjoy. That's vistro.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, right now, I am pleased to welcome Brian Fitzberg. He is with the group ReRescue, and they are interested in fostering animals and promoting it. And uh, uh, Brian has an interesting uh, story. Welcome, Brian. Oh, thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. Okay, so why don't you tell us about uh, ReRescue and your interest in promoting fostering of uh, pets? Sure. Um, so thank you for this opportunity. Uh, yes, we are real estate agents to the rescue. We're a nonprofit organization. And Peter, uh, forgive me, but I'm going to sort of correct you a little bit okay. on what, what our mission is. And it's very specific. We're all about awareness that fostering saves rescue pets. We don't actually ask anyone to do anything, and that's our key. We're all about spreading a positive message, four simple words, fostering saves rescue pets. Well, thanks for the clarity, and it's a great message. How did you get started in this? Yes, yeah, so I'm a real estate broker. I have my own real estate business, and I'm also an animal lover. I have four cats myself at the moment. I've had dogs in the past, but um, right now I've got four little kitties. And, you know, I never really knew what I could do or how I could do something. And I have a neighbor who fosters all kinds of dogs. And she's one of those people that has five leashes in her hands in her hand and is walking a bunch of dogs at the same time. And one day I was going to have an open house and I spontaneously just asked her, hey, why don't we bring those doggies over and we'll see if we can get them adopted at the open house. So it turns out that bringing live rescue pets to an open house is not a very good idea oh. for lots of reasons <laughs> but it evolved from there like that was the start and we now have grown into being uh, just a pure messaging campaign fostering saves rescue pets and what i'm trying to do now is enable and empower real estate agents all across the country to do what i've been doing so for example when i have an open house instead of bringing live rescue pets with me I have a poster and it says fostering saves rescue pets. Did you know you can foster for just a few days? And when I hand out my business card, one side of my business card has that same message. And when I do a mailing campaign or some kind of other social media campaign, I always include those four simple words, fostering saves rescue pets. And so it's all about spreading that message, creating awareness, and my belief is that if people connect with that message, they're going to ask me questions, and I'm going to help them out and, and show them how they can become a foster volunteer. Why is that message a good match for folks in the real estate business? It, when it comes down to what I found is we, even as recently as a year ago, or maybe almost six months ago, our message was be a hero, foster a rescue pet. We were promoting fostering. And what I found is that when you ask someone to do anything, it can be, you know, back people up. They might not really, you know, they, they, they want, they, they have issues. It's, um, it's interesting. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I really like someone 
I'm interested in, in them romantically. Okay. Every time I see them, I say, you know, I really like you. Would you like to go out? When can we go out? You know, if that person is not interested in me, they are going to very quickly run the other way when they see me coming. But what if instead I never shared my feelings and all I did was say, it's so nice to see you, have a wonderful day with a big smile on my face and walked away. If that person is interested in me, they will let me know. And if not, they're going to think I'm a nice guy. So that's what the messaging is about. And real estate agents connect with lots and lots of people. We network constantly. We're always reaching out and going to community events. And we're, we're really good at networking and yeah. messaging. And so I, I realized that real estate agents have a unique ability to spread a message. And there are many realtors who are animal lovers. It's, it's amazing how many I've found that um, really embrace this very simple way of doing something. Okay, so how are you growing this movement, and how can listeners learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, so speaking to real estate agents, we are we do a, a number of things. Um, one of them, we're planning our big stadium events. An example might be the Dodger Stadium Community Dog Walk, or we put on community events of our own. I live in a community called Glassell Park, and we created a community event called Glassell Bark, and meow, we don't forget the kitty cats. Yep. And we bring out adoptable doggies and kitties. We have the human barking contest, a doggy costume parade. We have a watermelon eating contest where you compete against your own dog. <laughs> and um, you know what I do is I invite real estate agents to come out to these events, make it a really great social gathering for you, your past clients, your future prospects. Invite them all to come out and have a wonderful time, bring their pets, bring their kids, don't forget to bring your bark. And it's a real great way for real a platform for real estate agents to uh, network again. And at the same time, where this is an awareness campaign to spread that message, fostering sage rescue pets to the people that come. Brian, what do you find are the hesitancies that people have before they get into uh, fostering? I think it's the unknown. You know, what is fostering do i have to keep this animal for the rest of its life is it how is it a month do i have to pay for the food and the vet bills there are a lot of questions people have and the unknown can be scary it's all about information and sharing information and to take the questions out of the equation so once people know they can foster for just a few days that really opens up people's hearts to say wow if, I, if that can help Brian, what's a website people can visit to learn more? So, Real Estate Agents of the Rescue, or rerescue.org, R-E-Rescue.org, you know, like, like realestaterescue.org. And um, that's the best place where you can go and learn more about fostering, find rescue groups and shelters near you by putting in your zip code, and um, learn about how you can foster for just a few days. Brian, it's a very interesting and innovative thing you are undertaking, and we wish you great success. Thank you for coming on Animals Today. Thank you so much for the chance to talk to you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.